0: Uh, it's a it's a real pleasure to uh, to introduce him, and uh, it's great that you could you could be with us here in Sydney. Uh, Ed Stetzer has has planted, revitalised, and pastored churches. He uh, trained pastors pastors and planters on five continents. He holds two master's degrees, uh, two doctorates. He's written dozens of articles and books. He's a contributing editor for Christianity Today, a columnist for Outreach magazine, and Catalyst Monthly. He serves on the advisory council of Sermon Central and Christianity Today's Building Church Leaders and he's frequently cited or interviewed in news outlets such as USA, uh, USA Today and CNN, uh, largely because of his role as President of Lifeway Research. Uh, it, it's interesting, the bio that uh, that Amy, his uh, his PA, sent me uh, doesn't speak about uh, the other work that he does. Um, he's also the pastor, the lead pastor of, uh, of Grace uh, Church uh, in Hendersonville, Tennessee, Uh there you'll find that uh, Ed is married to Donna, they've got three daughters, and his primary role uh, at the church is speaking at weekend worship services and providing leadership to the staff. Uh, please uh, please welcome Ed Stetzer. Yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, interviewing Interviewing is not something that Ed uh, is used to in Australia. Yeah, that's Thank it. you, it's good to be here, let me get started. <laughs> yeah. You're a prolific writer, researcher, and blogger, and, uh, and sometimes people can think that the academic life um, is very devoid of, of being a pastor. Can you tell us, why, why do you pastor a church?
1: You know, about, about a year and a half ago, I was um, I've been serving at Lifeway Research, uh, you know, doing the things we do, research, analysis, cultural uh, engagement, and a church in California uh, on the West Coast asked if I would come and be the co-pastor there. And we've, we found ourselves, Don and I, we, we found ourselves remarkably open to the idea, um, which, which we shouldn't have been. We were just doing I mean, what we have great opportunity to influence and help churches all over the world. And so we prayed about it. We actually, for four days, were, were pretty much thinking of going there. Mm-hmm. And, 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 but the Lord just kind of put in our hearts that this wasn't the time and the place. And so we said no. And so I came back, and I, 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 we just started talking and praying and, and uh, saying, why were we so open to that? And I think the reason was is I was not pastoring at the time. And I think, I, I, I feel, a. Uh, I believe I have a call to the office of Pastor Elder in a local church. I've planted uh, six churches. And so, you know, serving in this role, I've been what we call an interim pastor. I don't know if they're the same commonality here. Uh, but basically, interim pastor is you go preach for somebody for a couple of years while they look for a pastor. You don't have to put up with all the stuff. And then you get to go home on the weekends uh, and or on the weekdays. And so I've been doing that for two churches. And I just didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to to be in ministry, um, you know, because I'm I, I'm largely kind of a we have a joke in this. I'm a motivational speaker who lives in a van down by the river. It's a reference to a TV show, but um, but you know, for me, the, the what I'm going to be wrestling with real world church planting and real world ministry. So one week I get I preach one Sunday a month at someone else's church. So one week I'll preach to. a you know, a church where all I see is lights, because, you know, some of these large churches in America, so all you see is lights, you don't even see people. And, uh, um, and, and, it's, and, and it can, you can get a very fake world. And so I love the fact that three-quarters of the time, I go to my church, and we, we, we meet in a movie theater, and I preach to people that are, that, I'm, that are messed up like me and we're struggling on this journey together. There's this, there's this lady who sits sort of over here, um, and she talks to me during the sermon for no apparent reason. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and, I, and, I, and I love that because I think that's real-world ministry. So we planted Grace Church about nine months ago. I'm the lead pastor, though I'm a volunteer, unpaid lead pastor, and we have staff and we have a team of pastor elders that work together in the leadership of that church. So for me, it's there because I, you know, I go all over the world telling people, God has chosen the church to make known his manifold wisdom, Ephesians 3.10. It just seemed a little silly to do that and not actually be engaged in leading one. Correct. I have to learn the culture. It's a little different here. And uh, though the occasional reference to the Simpsons confuses me, I I must say, Ned Flanders and all this sort of stuff. You know, here I, I, you surprise me sometimes with those things, Alan. I I appreciate a fellow uh, Simpsons watcher, repent and Mm -hmm. uh, get right with the Lord and, you know, watch some other stuff, I guess. Uh, but um, <laughs> but I'm going to talk today uh, about several issues and areas. Now I want you to know there's some things I'm not going to do today. I, I I'm not here to uh, thank you so much. I, I'm not here to bring a a, a sermon. I'd like to. Um, if I, sometimes I might get a bit sermonic along the way and start uh, start uh, start start a little bit of that. But I'm here to do a series of lecture seminars, if you will, on areas that are related to multiplication and particularly to movemental multiplication. In churches. That's going to be my focus today as we talk about that. Um, my, my PhD is in the area of missiology. And so, what we do when we study missiology is we look at what God is doing in, in mission and around the world. And, and, and so, what I want to do is I want to sort of kind of encourage us to that direction here in Australia. Now, I want you to know that I, this may be a shock to you, but I'm actually not from Australia. Uh, the uh, the accent may have thrown you because I'm so, I've blended so quickly I've uh, I've learned to say blokes and uh, Scott keeps calling me his mate which is just not right where I come from and uh, um, so a bit disturbing but nonetheless um, I think that's okay um, he says it is but you know you know no uh, and um, and so so you know so 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 I'm not from Australia and I'm always very uh, reticent and cautious to cross cultures and say this is what would or should or can happen here. Um, and so I don't have a list of things that you're doing wrong and need to change or things of that sort. Um, you know What I have is some exhortations along the way. Uh, that, that, may, that may be helpful, and you can determine some of what it may be helpful. Uh, but, but again, whenever we cross cultures, we need be careful of that. And particularly, just to be honest, particularly when Americans cross cultures, uh, because Americans uh, both have a large disproportionately large evangelical population, not the largest in the world anymore. The Guada- people of Guatemala attend evangelical churches at a higher percentage than, than churches in the U.S. and many other uh, countries as well. There will be more evangelicals in Brazil than in the United States by 2020. Um, but, but But, part of it is is that you know, Americans can b- have a bit of a triumphalist spirit in the way that they communicate things. If you just do these things, then these things will happen and i, I don 't want to come with you to that spirit uh, at the same time. I want to share examples both from around the world and some from my own experience that and, and, and one of the things i 've learned i 've actually been coached a little bit on the culture is that sometimes um, Sometimes you know, some one of the things that people don't like is when you use examples or this sort of stuff. There's a bit of a sense that that maybe you're uh, you're you're bragging, and I want you to know I, I'm just going to try to share um, real life experiences that for me, um, and, and, and 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 if that's culturally problematic, please please help please see through my. My inability to contextualize on that level, but sometimes I'll get up and, and, I'll, and I'll share about an experience that a friend of mine does, and they've told me one of the phrases that Australians hate the most is "well, a friend of mine," and uh, and but but that's that's kind of the way when you do research, you look at movements, and so and they become your friends, and and so then you share their story. So I want I want your permission to kind of share their story without you thinking that I'm trying to impress you with my friendships. I have a lot of uh, wonderful friendships. I've got a lot of really bad friends who are sinners, and, uh, and, and, and you know, I'm really bad people, too. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably not share all the examples of the bad people, the sinners and Republicans that I'm friends with. Uh, and um, Sorry. Uh, but, but instead, I might share some that are good examples along the way. Um, But basically what we want to talk about is what does it look like to see those multiplication movements in Australia? How do we multiply? Now, here's a general outline of what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to start by some just talking a little bit about about the the story of church planting movements and church multiplication movements. Uh, We're going to do some definitions. I think it'll help us to do some definitions along the way. Uh, I'm going to share with you some research, some research, some pictures we've seen uh, along the journey. We're going to talk some about missiology and how it relates to that. I'll make some observations, and then we'll um, have some discussion a little bit later on. Um, now, now, I want to I start by saying a little bit um, that maybe may a, a reference that may may help. Scott, what time am I supposed to go till so I don't go too long? Uh, yeah, 20, uh, quarter past. Quarter past, okay. All right, and so, so, so what then do we look for? Well, first, I want to say I, there's a lot of people right now asking the question. I, I call it searching for the grail of, uh, of church planting movements. Um, there, there, when we talk about church-playing movements, there's this desire, and I think it's a good and rightful desire, that we might see a uh, multiplicative, exponential growth of churches to take place in Australia and in the Western context. Part of that is actually driven by the idea that it has already or is already taking place in some other places around the world. Um, we can give examples of, we're recording this, so that I won't, some of them are in restricted access uh, countries, but I, I think of one example of, uh, of a Central Asian nation where we've seen hundreds of thousands of believers uh, in just a short amount of time uh, be converted, um, come into churches, and, and really do, and a lot what we've talked about here, hundreds of new churches evangelized into existence across Australia. Scott, I, want you to, I love that phrase, evangelized uh, into existence, because because in doing so, that's what we desire. And so we hear from around the world that some of this uh, this kind of growth does exist and it does indeed. And so it can be it can be frustrating to us because we don't have that growth. Uh, and so so we think, well there's something wrong with us. And and what happens immediately is is we begin for some in some ways to create defeater beliefs. We we begin to say, well, well they're growing too quickly and therefore they must be theologically aberrant. And, and, and as if you couldn't grow in that way, as like they did in other times in Christian history, and be theologically orthodox. And so we've got, that's a defeater belief. Or we say, well, here it can't be done because, uh, well, where we are and when we are. And, and, and then at the other time, there's, there's this desire to find this, this mythical object, in the West. And so what happens is, is that um, people begin to tell stories that, well, uh, we, we, we saw this in Brisbane or saw this in Perth. And, and so what happens is people begin to say, they begin to tell and the stories grow with the telling. Uh, and, and there was this movement that took place in Perth. And, and, uh, and, 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 and it can actually be unhelpful because it, when we go look at it, it's not the movement that we actually thought that it was. But it's like the Holy Grail, the Holy Grail in the Middle Ages. Everyone knew there was a Holy Grail, and it was somewhere in Europe, and many people had seen it or heard about it, or a friend had seen it two towns over, and when they got there, well, a friend had seen it two towns over from there as well. And so there's always this sense that we're, 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 we're listening for stories of breakthrough, sometimes believing them when they're not there, but at the same time we're searching for that breakthrough and so how then can we think in terms of getting the multiplication movements here well part of it is to imagine a difficult a different world and some of you are taking notes so feverishly uh let me just say uh, i every powerpoint that i show today um i will give to scott to distribute to all of you as a pdf and so you can have that and anything i meant there your relief has just come over you right there i wanted to bring you peace and grace and love in the name of our lord jesus and so be free uh be free um And so, also, anytime I sometimes during a question, someone will say, "Well, have you done any research on this?" I like the preaching thing you mentioned. And I could say, yeah, I did. I, I could send that to you. And so Scott's going to keep a little running tally. And then, well, uh, I'll kind of download all that stuff on you. I want to share. I want to encourage. I want to bless you because hopefully that's a way that I can serve you. But, but ultimately, it's imagining a different world and envisioning what would it look like really and truly if hundreds of new churches were evangelized into existence. That's the preferred future of what a church multiplication and movement in Australia would look like. And this is partly helps us understand the difference between church planting and church multiplication. See, many of you here are are planting churches, and I'm so glad you're here. Matter of fact, I want you to know I consider it a great honor to be able to stand before uh, you, who are the, who are planting churches in Australia, in an area that that uh, you know, people. I planted a church in, in in my country in a place called Buffalo, New York. Um, I don't know; it's it's kind of the the unwanted, the undesired, the the unappreciated, the despised part of the country, uh, Tasmania, and, and so the. Uh, Mikey told me to say that. Uh, Mikey Lynch told me to say that. And so but that's where I planted. And so it was a hard area to plant. But I want you to know the hardest area to plant in my country would probably be easier to plant than it is in a resistant and a hard soil place like Australia. And so I'm honored that you would allow me to teach you because I think that what you're doing is, well, it's the front lines of God's work. Ephesians 3.10 says God has chosen the church to make known his manifold wisdom. You, in in obedience to the command of our Lord and Jesus, are planting churches here. So I want to exhort you in that, but I want us to consider the difference between church planting and church multiplication. Let, Let me give you an example. Uh, when I was planting a church in, 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 in Pennsylvania, a, a, a northeastern state, and um, we had planted this church, and 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 it had grown, and you know, pr- pr- I think numerical things aren't transferable, so I would not necessarily share, but those things, but it had grown to a, a pr- you know, rapidly grown over four years, and um, we had grown, and I remember going through uh, basic training. Do you call basic training boot camp? What do you call the initial training for church planners? In the shoot. Really, sheep? Sheep go down a chute, and they get shorn. This is inconceivable to me. Okay, so you've named it after the shearing of sheep shorn. Uh, okay, sorry, I don't know. I don't know. see. I'm already, I'm already lost. Um, so this in the chute thing that you do. This uh, we call it uh, boot camp, but we're a militaristic people, and uh, you know. So if we could call it, you know, sword training, we would, uh, you know, uh, you know. But 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 this in the shoot training that you do is 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 you teach people to plant a church, but probably in there you say and make sure you plant a church from your church. Uh, See, so they're nodding your heads. Excellent, excellent. And so so but here's so so we planted this church, and. And we had planted a church, and in our in our in the shoot training, in our basic training, um, we had heard that we should plant a church within three years. Um, and so we said, "Well, okay, we'll plant a church within three years." And so so our church had grown to uh, you know a few hundred folks. And, and what we decided our fourth year, our fourth anniversary, we decided to plant uh, two daughter churches. I'm sorry, our third anniversary, to plant two daughter churches on the same day. We called it having twins. And uh, and, and so we we're very excited about it. And so we, we sent out the people. And we ended up sending up, we had, we had wonderful strong first services in two towns nearby. And so we ended up with three churches on that day. And it was interesting. Because I was asked soon thereafter to become a, a professor of church planting. After we announced this, I was going to be a professor of church planting, and I was just fascinated by this because you know I, I had done a uh, before I did my PhD, I, I did a doctor of ministry. I don't know if you have the same degree. You do, okay? Uh, I did a doctor of ministry before I did the PhD, and so so. But typically, you know, they, in the states, they don't have professors with demons. But I've been impre- so I was approached now, and so I, I, I now I, I was asked to be a professor and, and actually served three years on the faculty at um, Southern Seminary and in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And so, but I, but I said to, I said to somebody, well, why, why are you inviting me to be a professor? We planted a church. It's not been this, you know, 10,000 people or anything of that sort. Um, I said, we just, you know, planted some daughter churches. And, 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 and I said to Stan Smith, who was my supervisor, I said, Stan, I mean, that's what you told us to do when we were in boot camp, in the shoot, when we were there. That's what you told us to do, is to plan a church after our third year. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, but nobody actually has done it uh, until now. You see, there's almost a sense that, that we, we, we struggle so much with church planting, and and we do, it's hard, it's hard work, is that getting to church multiplication, which means that churches plant churches, that plant churches, that plant churches, that ultimately gets us to true multiplication movements. Why do we need it? Well, because the likely fruit will be evangelistic results, Because ultimately men and women without Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins. They hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place. And that only through him might we receive new and eternal life. And they are made new in Christ. We plant churches... Well, so that men and women might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, some have said we plant the gospel and it results in churches, and I like that. When we see the pattern of the New Testament, they didn't announce a new church. They didn't go public with a launch like we sometimes think and discuss. Instead, they planted the gospel and churches naturally emerged from gospel planting. So the likely fruit is evangelistic results and also leadership development results. For churches to become the kind of churches that God desires and intends them to be, it will involve new leaders in new roles and new directions. And so at the end of the day, it's simple. It's, we have to imagine, I think, a different world and envisioning when people tell us to think about the future. say, What would it look like in the future and how would we engineer the way that we do church today? What would it look like? Well, let's talk about four things, five things that will help us to do that. Is One, the difference between church planting and church multiplication here gives us a picture of a different approach. Let's talk some about what that might look like as we envision a church planting movement. Now, um, I want you to notice that I'm using a little different language, and I'm intentionally using it. I'm talking about a church planting movement on one hand, and I'm talking about a church multiplication movement on the other. And there's an important distinction between the two. Uh, the, the idea of the church planting movement uh, kind of was brought to the fore in missiology, which is a you know field of study and discipline, um, by a person and a team by named David Garrison and a partner with teams of others both in, in evangelical and and denominational and widely more widely evangelical institutions. Um, how many of you have heard of David Garrison's church planting movements? Okay, I'd say a third of you. Now. What David's a friend of mine. We've actually written things together on this issue. But David studied these uh, rapid, indigenous, explosive growth churches. Now, I want you to know that not everything that grows rapidly is a good thing. right? Cancer grows rapidly. Right? I have, uh, one of the f- more fascinating things about Australia I've noticed is, is uh, that every third commercial on television is about you're going to get cancer if you do something bad. (laughs) I don't know why that is. Uh, It appears that smoking kills you instantly. Uh, Tanning is, I mean, there's this one commercial where this little melanoma cell is just, so my wife and I are like, we're hiding from the sun everywhere we go. Um, so, So not every growth is a good growth. Matter of fact, I'd encourage you to read David Hesselgrave's book. David Hesselgrave is the founder of the Evangelical Missiological Society. He wrote a book called uh, "Called Dynamic Religious Movements," where he looked at twelve well dynamic religious movements around the world. Not necessarily Christian; the vast majority were not, and looked at the characteristics they had in common that led to explosive growth. There are socio-cultural realities that can and do create explosive growth. That's not gospel growth. But at the same time, it would be a mistake to rule out the idea of church planting movements based on the aberration. Sometimes we do that. Have you noticed that? Sometimes what we do is we take the worst example of something and define everything by its worst example and therefore rule it out. Why? Because maybe we haven't seen it happen here. So if it's happening there, they must be doing something sinful so that it might happen. Well, no, but the reality is it's not happening here. There are 34 Western industrialized democracies in the world. And there's no church planting movement among any majority people in any of them. Say it again so you don't miss it. There are 34 Western industrialized democracies and there are no church planting movements, as David Garrison defines them, among majority peoples in any of them. Now, there are some among migrant peoples. Um, uh, there, are some, uh, there, are some, there are some Western societies where, where we see this. There are, some, uh, there are some industrialized societies where we see this. But when you put those things together... Now, David, if you read David's uh, most recent book, Church Playing Movements, he actually has several examples of church planning movements in the West. Uh, he would no longer say that those are, are examples that fit the definition, partly because of our dialogue along the way, and I'll share some of that. But I think David's research is solid in the observation of church planning movements around the world. Now, these are not um, aspirational observations. These are not, man, we'd really hope to see these things. Because people have often written on, well, here's what we'd hope to see. But these are actual observations. And were, he, One of the things he talked about is 10 universal elements of church planning movements. That they, they began with a great passion and enthusiasm for prayer. Um, that there was an abundance of gospel sowing. And we're going to come back to the evangelism gap a little bit later on. That's so important. That there was intentional church planting. I'll give you an example in Romania when I taught at a seminary there in Romania. In order to graduate from the seminary in Romania, in Braia, here's your, the requirement was this, is that you, you had to actually plant a church successfully as a requirement of graduation from the seminary. So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not... You, you, you chuckle, and I, and I get that, but I, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if, if actually there was a requirement? Well, that's the kind of intentionality. Now, now there's actually not a church planting movement in Romania, but a high degree of church planting. I would say a church multiplication movement is there. I'll define the two a little differently for you later on. A scriptural authority is a very deep and com- driven commitment to the scriptures is found in every church planting movement. Here's the thing. I want you to hear this. People who aren't serious about the Word of God don't want to make the sacrifices described in the Word of God to plant churches that look like the Word of God. Does that that make sense? And so a deep commitment to scriptural authority. Um, Local leadership. This is a very key thing. One of the things that I'm going to make you uncomfortable in today is I'm going to push you to consider what does it look like to raise up indigenous leadership from the harvest Furthermore, I'm going to push you to ask questions about what does this mean scripturally, and how do we line up our credentialing processes with scriptural realities? But local leadership is a key thing. As a matter of fact, it's often lay leadership. Matter of fact, I would say one of the critiques of the church planting movement missiology that David has uh, promoted and talked about is this critique that uh, there's not enough trained leadership, and often you have lay leadership. In house churches. In fact, the vast majority of church planting movements around the world are house church driven. Now, immediately, if, if I'm you, I'm saying, well, that wouldn't work in Australia. And, and, and I, I say a similar thing in the United States. That wouldn't work in the United States. And, and, and I would say this I would say this. I would say there are many factors that push against the kind of multiplicative church planting movement that we see around the world, which is one of the reasons you're going to find that I'm not going to advocate that you adopt this missiology in Australia. But it does involve things we can learn, like churches planting churches, churches starting churches that starting churches. Uh, now, now I, want you to, I want you, for example, I want you to think about uh, the planting of churches that comes from your congregation or congregations. The reality is the vast majority of churches are right now in Australia unengaged in daughtering a church. Now, Scott, is daughtering language you use, or do you use partnering, or what was it? Mother-daughter. Okay, mother-daughter. The vast majority of churches are unengaged. As a matter of fact, I think you should probably get accustomed to the fact that the vast majority of churches are going to be unengaged in church planting. Why? Because most churches look more like Jerusalem than they look like Antioch. right? I want you to think about this. The Jerusalem church only sends out people to check up and tell on the other churches in and around the Mediterranean. Have you noticed that? So when the people from Jerusalem come, that means your church plants in trouble with somebody. Because the people of Jerusalem, they've got grave concerns. They've got grave concerns about the way you're doing church. And so, so Jerusalem churches tend to become inward, which, interesting historically, the Jerusalem church would eventually become so inward, it would largely revert back into Judaism and become the Ebionite heresy. On the other hand, the Antioch Church, where they were first called Christians, becomes the great sending church to the place where the, the Antioch Church is the church that people use as an example. If you go to Singapore today, the Singaporean Christians will often say to you, we want to be the Antioch of Asia. And I'm always, I always want to point out to them, Antioch is sort of in Asia, so I don't think you can <laughs> technically be the Antioch of Asia, but I, I don't... You know, I want to affirm the idea of being the Antioch of Asia. You don't want to be that guy, you know, the geography police. Um, but, but I want to encourage you that, that these Antioch churches, churches that plant churches that plant churches that plant churches, I know that's irritating because I said it five times, but I, if, I, if I stop saying it five times, I'll stop saying it five times in a row when you and I start doing it five times in a row. So rapid reproduction. Now, here's the question here. Is rapidity the goal? I think, I think rapidity as the goal is problematic. But rapidity observed where there's such an amount of abundant gospel sowing and conversions taking place that the end result is it's leading to rapid reproduction is a good thing. And ultimately, one of the universal elements is healthy churches. Now, what then? how then do we think in terms of those ways? Well, as I began to look um, more in the Western world, my focus has been the West. Uh, and so, as so a matter of fact, when I did my PhD, I did my PhD in missiology, and I had a lot of people resist the idea that I would do a Ph.D. in missiology, but ask Western missiological thoughts. Um, so I wrote um, on these, I did my Ph.D. dissertation on a quantitative and qualitative analysis of church planting systems strategies. Uh, you know, so you know, three people read my dissertation. Right. And and so, you know, and so but 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 I wanted to study missiology as a Western tool because I think people increasingly are seeing the West and by the West. I'm talking about, you know, the United States, Australia, Canada, England, but people are increasingly and more people are seeing the West rightfully as a mission field. So I began to ask some questions and to gather some conversation pieces or what are some of the things we've seen again historically of movemental Christianity in the West where there are some differences. Well, let me share a few. First, prayer was again universally present. We can look to awakenings, uh, though, though, though there's been some debate, obviously, though awakenings, whether awakenings have happened here in Australia. Um, what, what most people tell me is that we haven't seen the same level of awakenings, but we've seen awakenings in other places around the world. They're often, often is the wrong word, they're always accompanied by these, this idea of abiding prayer. Um, and, and so we saw prayer. We see intentionality, intentionality at every level, and this is this is so important because it's intentionality in gospel proclamation and in church planting. Now, I mentioned earlier. Well, actually, Scott mentioned earlier that I'm I'm planting a church, and you're right, Scott. The Amy, who's my assistant, who sends out the bio, they they don't include that uh, typically, and, and 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 I don't know if I should or I shouldn't because that's not my uh, that's not my job. It's my love. Um, I love the church. I, I'm, I'm, the church is. You know, I get the church is supposed to be this beautiful bride of Christ, and she looks sometimes like Shrek. Uh, you know, I, I, I but 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 I can't get over my my love affair with the church and the ability, the privilege to serve her uh, in that role. But I knew this. I knew that as a church planter, um, you know, because because remember, I'm planting a church, but I have have I have a, a full time job. But I'm not. You know, I'm not bivocational. We, we use the term bivocational to describe. Is that the same term here? Where, where, like, you have a job at the postal service and then on the weekends you preach and start a church? Um, I, I don't want to say I'm bivocational because I really, bivocational pastors are really my heroes because, uh, because they work, you know, all week long you know, at the factory, and then they plant churches on the weekend. Um, And so, and I don't, you know, I I work in a Christian ministry. I can, I speak, I can travel, I can work on my messages when I travel. Um, And so, so it's a little different. But I knew that I, I knew that I only have a limited amount of time. So when Al talked about uh, somewhere, your sermon preparation between 40 minutes and 40 hours, which, by the way, I found a very helpful uh, scale. Uh, And, uh... (laughs) Way to take a stand, Al. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> um, but I think you're right on. It's right in there somewhere. Uh, I, I, I would say that if I didn't have a full-time job, that certainly I, I would wish I could spend more on there, but I but I can't. And and, and so 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 I knew there are three things I need to do. One is I have to teach the word of God um, faithfully. I have to be prepared for the proclamation of the word of God. I preach every week to my congregation. Uh, three out of four weeks to my congregation and one out of four weeks to somebody else's congregation. Somebody else's congregation is a lot easier because I just tend to preach what I preached last week at my church or some other message that they've asked me to actually do. So three out of four weeks, I'm preparing a message. I'm wrestling through the text. I I'm, want I'm to communicate that. Why? Because I think that's essential for my responsibility as a pastor and church planner is to take seriously the text. I want to be intentional about it. Uh, the second thing I do is I, I meet with the staff. Um, we actually meet 3 days a week. We actually meet, I know it seems strange. We meet uh 6:30 a.m. in the mornings um because I got to go to work. And so we meet 6:30 a.m. in the morning, Monday, 6:30 a.m. We meet uh we meet on exercise equipment. Uh actually two of us are on exercise equipment. So I work out in the elliptical for an hour every week. I know what you're thinking, try harder. Uh but um but but but, but made made some great progress. Uh and uh but so, but why? Because we're doing two things at once, and two of our guys, you know, they're, they're young, and they don't need to work out. At least they think so. And, uh, and so they'll be there. So, so I'm going to be intentional. So intentionality. But here's the thing. So what can I do with the rest of my time? Well, I could write books. I love writing books. I could, uh, I could speak. But here's what I do with the rest of my time, is every Sunday night in my neighborhood, I lead a small group. Now, I lead a, we call it a life group. Everyone has a catchy name for their for their small group ministry. So I lead a life group every every Sunday night in my home. Now, why do I do this? Well, here's why because I'm trying to model for my congregation missional engagement and lifestyle in my own neighborhood. And so if my neighbors, there are eight neighbors, of the eight neighbors who are within one or two houses of me, five of the eight have come to our small group, have come to our church, we've talked about the gospel, we're in some sort of gospel conversation or relationship. Why? I've lived there four or five years, so it takes the time to do that. But for us, intentionality, I I want our church to be a movement And if I can get the uh, 200 or so attendees at Grace Church to be living as agents of gospel influence in their communities, and then we can multiply and multiply and multiply, the end result, I believe, will be movemental Christianity. And I don't think I can stand up in front of my church and say, listen, you reach your neighbors and I'm not reaching my neighbors. You cannot lead, pastors, elders, leaders, you cannot lead what you do not live. And so the necessity is, is to make that habit. You cannot lead what you do not live. And so intentionality is key. Also, every time there's a movement, there's sacrifice. Every time there's a movement, there's sacrifice. If there's going to be a movement of church planting in Australia, uh, many of you will sacrifice, uh, and you'll sacrifice sometimes in your church by sending people out, by sharing of resources, all of those things. Ultimately, sacrifice will be present and will be real. Reproducibility. Listen, if the way you plant churches cannot be easily reproduced, you might want to consider how you're planting churches. One of the things we've seen in Europe um, and the States and Canada is we're seeing an increasing cost for church plants. Now, I will tell you, when we see rapid church planting, they're done cheaply. When we're seeing... Uh, church plants that begin to slow. So, for example, we're seeing church plants. One, one very well-known church planting trainer said, don't plant a church until you have $100,000 in the bank committed to support the church plant. I would never have planted a church. I, I, I've, never, I've never seen $100,000 in a church bank checking account. So what we're seeing is this upward pressure in Europe, this upward pressure in North America towards these things. And What happens is it creates systems that are not reproducible. So let me give you an example. Uh, my denomination uh, helped fund church planters. And I, I, hate, I hate even to tell you this because it makes me feel guilty. Uh, but we, we partnered with some large churches. Uh, I was not in charge of this program just to distance myself. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> I was courageous right there, wasn't it? Uh, but, but we had some large churches partner and they partnered with the denomination. And they, the denomination put in 250,000 US dollars and the partner church put in 250,000 US dollars. And so half a million dollars was sent in to plant those churches. Each church got to half a million dollars. I'm like, here I am, Lord, send me. <laughs> What's interesting, those church plants had no higher success rate than church plants that were funded at fifteen dollars to $20,000 from a national denominational office partnered with other entities on the ground. But here's what did happen. There were, some were successful, right? There were only 12 of them, but some were successful, and here's what happened, right? I can think of one in the northeastern part of the country. They, they uh, Well, I mean, there are more than one, so I won't use that one as an example, um, but, but what happened was this. When it was time to plant a daughter church two years later, you know what they did? They called back and said, hey, we need $250,000 to plant a daughter church. When you create those expectations, you remove reproducibility. The question is, is how were churches planted at the beginning in Australia? They were planted by people who were called by God, who probably had other roles and vocations, who planted churches that ultimately multiplied. Theological integrity. A movement without theological integrity sees no reason to reproduce itself. This, this is one of the reasons people sometimes wonder and, and where, you know, you, maybe you're in a, a denomination or maybe some of you are here in a denomination that has uh, lost some of its fidelity to the gospel and you're planting churches within it or you're working with people who plant churches within it. Almost always, the, not always, but almost always the people who want to talk about church planting and evangelism are actually gospel people. Sometimes in a, in a denomination that where, where there's not a lot of gospel people, the people are saying, "I want to plant churches." Those are the gospel people. Why? Because people aren't the gospel people are kind of riding out the organizational structure. They're in a, they're, they're, they're in a sense those who have the, the, those who are who have maintained the form but of unengaged in, ultimately, the mission. So theological integrity is key. Incarnation. In other words, people debate whether or not, uh, whether or not we should use the word incarnational. Are Christians incarnational? And we can debate that if, if that's of desire. But, but I, I think the point here is this, is that church multiplication, movemental Christianity is always from and among the people from and among the people. There's empowerment, empowerment that people are given permission to to do and to lead and to go. There's not this sense of we don't trust you yet. You have to be a part of us for seven years before you can lead out in a ministry in a role. There's charitability movements that are always shooting at each other and tearing down one another actually never reproduce. Why? Because they're always looking and pointing and saying, aha, what are you doing? That's wrong. I explained it this way is sometimes when you begin to think about movemental church planting, sometimes new ways of doing church Emerge. Now, mind you, I, I, I believe, and I'm going to talk about this later, I'm very, ecclesiology is a very important thing for me. I just wrote a missiology textbook. My next textbook, my, my graduate-level textbook, will be on ecclesiology. But the reality is is sometimes people do churches, and uh, perhaps in some different ways. I'm not talking about the marks of a biblical church. Those are transcultural and universal. But all of a sudden, there's, there's maybe a new way of music, or a new time of meeting, or a new location, or a new way of gathering. And it, it, if you will, it kind of crawls out of the primordial ecclesiological. Logical swamp and my people, we kill it and then see what it was afterwards if we liked it or not. Maybe your people are that way too. Rather, I I want to encourage people to think about the marks of a biblical church that are transcultural, but to give them freedom and have be charitable in the process of doing so. Also, scalability is a key thing as well. Scareability. Don't be frightened. Uh, Scalability is what I meant to say is, is an important thing as well. If you're going to have a movement it can't be contained, it has to be given permission to expand. And lastly, these movements impact all of society. They impact all of society from a gospel proclamation center to then people changed by the power of the gospel who live as people who love Jesus and who love others because of their love for him. So what are the challenges? Did you say I went till 10? So in conclusion, no, I'm just kidding you know the next slide. That's kind of cheating, that you would know the next slide. So let me talk about, David Garrison and I decided together, because I I was out there saying there are 34 Western industrialized democracies and no church planning movement among them. And David was writing about church planning movements among them, and and about how they could be. And so David and I got together, and we had a good meeting. Um, I, I was the in North American missiologist for my denomination at the time, my roles changed a bit since then. Now we do research globally, um, and David was the international uh, researcher for our denomination. So we got together, and we talked about three, and we wrote a paper actually, and it's a, it's available if you wanted. I could send it to Scott and share it with all of you. We wrote a 50-page paper, um, and uh, because there's nothing more exciting than a 50-page paper on ecclesiology and missiology, it's like a party, and uh, um, and so 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 we, we got together. And we wrote some of the challenges that have limited this rapid reproduction, this church multiplication movement to take place in the West. And so let me share with you a few of the things we talk about. First is the Western Dilemma. And, and that deals with both institutionalization and ecclesionomics. Now, ecclesionomics is not a real word, but I have a habit of making up words. You'll see that as we go through. So let's talk about institutionalization. Um, an institutionalized church is one of the great challenges to a multiplying movement. Ben, can I borrow your name tag for just a second? Let me, let me give an example from Ben's name tag. You take Ben's name tag right here, and, uh, and, and it's kind of, I want you to think of it like a yo-yo because it looks so much like a yo-yo. Um, but what happens over time, and, and you're going to be thrown out of the conference because you've done this. If you take a yo-yo, and let's pretend this is a yo-yo because of its remarkable similarity, and you take a yo-yo and you sort of spin it around, um, there are two forces, well, actually there's more than two, but there's a couple of forces in the popular sense that we think that are at work on the yo-yo. Okay, Here's the string, right? and this is the yo-yo right here. And so what happens is, is that there's this outward force, which is popularly called what? What's the outward force popularly called? Centrifugal force. It's not really. The physics majors among you would want to argue about a lot of things. Um, but that's why they went to college, uh, the university. And so, so there's that going out. So there's a centrifugal force that's pushing it outward. But the reason it's not flying and hitting Scott in the eye is because there's another force that's pulling it inward, exercised by the string. What do we commonly call that? Centripetal force. Again, it's not the same, but, but in the popular sense, we all agree. And so what happens is when a movement begins, what happens is this, is there's a lot of outward centrifugal energy. Uh, people are being reached for the gospel. Communities are being impacted. Uh, all this is going on. There's this outward energy that's at work. And you see it in the early stages of a church, a church plant, a movement, a denomination, whatever. You see this outward, centrifugal approach. But what happens over time is this, is you have to care for the string. So, right, I'm planning a church right now. And so we've got a little church. And, man, we started. We're reaching people for Christ, sharing the gospel. That's our focus. But we need a whole bunch of people now to work with our children. We have, I think, 30 to 40 people who on a regular basis are back there working with the kids. And we meet in a movie theater. We use other theaters. They're part of the strength. Don't despise the string. The string is not a bad thing. And then we got people now who got to count the offering or people got to see people or people got to print the programs or people got to... Got to we got life group leaders who are doing this and they're also helping with the outward focus. And so what happens is as the, the larger the mission and its outward focus gets, the bigger the string gets to support it. Here's the challenge. Here's institutionalization. I found it to be all over the world in cultures, contexts... Congregations. Here's what happens. Eventually, the totality of the ministry gets focused on servicing the string, rather than the outward focus with which the string was to support. Does that make sense? And so, so that's the challenge with institutionalization. You probably need this back, or else they're gonna gonna arrest you. Um, that that's the challenge with institutionalization. Is the the need to support the inward structures eventually overcomes the passion for the outward mission. Let me say it again. The need to support the inward structures eventually overcomes the passion for the outward mission. Now, smart organizations, smart denominations, smart churches continue to, Hebrews ten twenty four to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Because in doing so, they force that outward passion. Now, on the other hand, there's ecclesionomics now, one of the reasons that Islam has been successful around the world is an, is, is an economic reason. Um, if you go to Egypt today, and maybe some of you have been there, you've seen this as well. If you go to Egypt today, you'll find that uh, almost every merchant, every store, convenience store, I think you call them here, uh, every grocer um, has a symbol on the outside of the shop that says that this is a place of prayer, a mosque of sorts, uh, at, at the key times of prayer. Um, why? Why do they do such a thing? Here's why. Well, first, because probably many of them are devout Muslims, but also they get an economic incentive to do so. Now, I want you to hear this. For your church plant to start a church is usually an economic disincentive for your local congregation. And so Ecclesianomics play a very real function and reality. If you send people out, they could be some of your best givers, some of your best workers, some of your best servers. When we were planting those churches I talked about a few years ago, we hired uh, two church planters to, to, to come alongside, Howard and David. And their job was to plant the daughter churches out of our churches. I had already started small groups that met in these two towns, Harbor Creek and Meadville were the names of the towns. And so I was meeting with one on Tuesday one on Thursday because I love church planting. So even though I was the lead pastor of the mother church, I wanted to get the daughter churches started. It's my passion. And so we were there. And so eventually we brought on Howard and David. And we told Howard and David, all right, Your job, I've already got a small group here and here. Your job is going to be to take uh, these small groups that we've started and turn them into churches. But you need more people. That's not enough. And so we said to them, we give you what we call a fishing license. Here's what a fishing license is. It's basically, I said to Howard and David, any person, I met them, I said, any person at our church, Mill Creek was the name of our church, any person at Mill Creek Community Church that you can get to leave this church and go with you to plant this, your church, is yours to keep. And I sent them on their way and immediately called all the key tithers and said, <laughs> don't go near these people. I spread rumors about them, their theology, you know, how ugly they were. I mean, I just, but no, but I will tell you, it was a frightening time, it was a frightening time for the leadership of our church because we had, we had a whole worship team go with one of the church plants. But, but, so there's an economic disincentive, but a kingdom incentive. You see the distinction between the two? Because God's math is not like our math. God says, sow, and you'll reap. And so, so in doing that, by the way, when that worship team left, another worship team left, one of the drummers from another worship team left. We had two worship teams at the time. And so we were drummerless. We were drummerless because we loved Jesus and sent out church plants. God left us drummerless. We were a little bitter. Now, for some of you, you're like, drums in church? Praise God. That was an opportunity for God to clean out the worldly instruments from your church. Um, but for us, not so much. Um, and so, so, but here's what happened. There was a guy in the congregation. We got up and said, we don't have a drummer. So we need a drummer. Someone will be a drummer. So a guy in the congregation comes up afterwards and he, and he says, I, I, I can, I'll drum. And we said, you know, our last drummer, the guy who left was really kind of a bad drummer. Uh, You know, he thought he was. uh, He'd always do this, and you know, he's one of those guys who went to too many hair bands in the '80s. And uh, and so, so this new drummer, we said, "Well, can 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 you play?" And he said, "Well, because we knew he was he was actually in uh, worked in the automobile industry." He said, "Well, yeah, yeah, I I I used to play professionally uh, in a studio musician." And we were like, "You've been sitting there for two years while that lame drummer up front." (laughs) And he said, well, I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I said, you hurt our feelings. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> but, you know, it really takes a, a belief in faith that God will provide and to go against Ecclesiastics of self and instead to recognize the economy of God's kingdom. There's also the evangelism dilemma. See, discipleship, here, here's the thing. As much as we love evangelism, I will tell you, can I, can I tell you a little secret? Uh, I did not know. Uh, we, we love the, the, the uh, Matthias Medias' two ways to live. We 've been using that for years, and now i've since found out that some of you people are are connected to that, and so i 'm kind of like I feel like i 'm with famous people and because uh, we, we love but but here 's the thing want share this most people in the West are not serious about sharing Christ that, you say, "Well you, are, you, are you making a blanket statement? Yeah, I really am, I really am because it makes people uncomfortable, and we value comfort over Christ sharing. Now, 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 why is that? Well, because, because we don't want to seem strange. We want people, I mean, part of every, every Christian era has wanted to be in some degree accepted by the world. That's not a bad thing always, right? We saw some of the early apologists try to argue using philosophy and say, here's how this is correct. And, and I get that. We can argue with those things at the end of the day. But at the end of the day, one of the challenges why we haven't seen a movement in the West is the lack of this abiding, driving passion to share Christ with others, that leads to discipling. And, and one of the, uh, the elephants in the church is the lack of disciple-making passion and enthusiasm, which has instead, discipleship has been replaced often with a Christian subculture. In other words, you, you become a Christian and you learn to uh, dress and think and listen to new music and, and read new books, but there's not a, 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 an engagement from that subculture to another. Let me, let me, so we got the Western dilemma, the evangelical, evangelical dilemma. We've also got the cultural dilemma. Um, of peasants and professionals. And I want to talk about that for, for just a bit because I think this is important. When we look around the world, um, most of the church planting that we, movements that we see around the world are among uh, peasant, tribal, or clan societies. Those are technical, anthropological terms. Um, we don't live in a peasant, a tribal, or a clan society by and large. There may be places where that's real and true. But we do live in a place where what we live in is, uh, is what we call post-labor segmented society right so if you are sick you go to your doctor if you have a legal problem you go to your uh, barrister your lawyer if you have a mechanical problem your car you go to your mechanic Um, and if you have a spiritual problem we typically think that we go to somebody who has the credentials for spiritual preparation now that's changing uh, I was watching last night a long television interview with uh, Deepak Chopra. Uh, Deepak Chopra, who who, who is a uh, medical doctor of some controversy and now has become this spiritual leader, this this guru that millions and millions of people listen to. And I, I'll tell you, I'll just share this to you. Uh, my own father, who is not a, not a believer, he's not a Christian, um, he listens to Deepak Chopra. He reads Deepak Chopra faithfully along the way. So that's changing. But right now, We live in a society where people look to professionals. And one of the great challenges to see a church multiplication movement is if we're going to raise up all kinds of indigenous leaders and society will not recognize them as indigenous leaders, how then can we ultimately accomplish the multiplication if that's God's desire to bring it? Well, this is the challenge of peasants and professionals. Peasants, it's easy. Here's why. If you're in Papua New Guinea or maybe another, you're a different island, and everyone in the tribe every day gets up, and goes and harvests the durian that has fallen from the tree the night before, and goes back or goes hunting, then brings back to the village. Everybody does the same thing every day. That's the existence. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's that kind of existence. It's all around the world. People do this. Um, and then the gospel comes, and one person, uh, and let, let's call him, the, well, let's say he's not the tribal chieftain, but let's just say he's, a, he, one person is the most, Uh, receptive to the gospel, becomes the most godly, becomes the most discipled, uh, grows deeply in his faith, then you know that that person is going to be the pastor of the church. But he's still going to get up with everybody else and go gather the Dorian in the morning or go hunting in the afternoon. And so what you have is you have the ability for a rapidity of church multiplication because you've broken down clergy castes. Now, there's some dangers to that. I'm going to get to those. Don't think I'm unaware of those, that I'm so naive I'm walking and saying, oh, I hadn't thought about that. But in doing so, one of the things we have to get is, as part of the danger, I think, right now that limits in the West is this issue of what I call clergification. We have been clergified in evangelical churches in the West. As a matter of fact, I think that most evangelical churches look more like pre-Reformation Roman Catholic churches when it comes to their view of the clergy than they do actually like Protestant and evangelical churches. There's one great person, one great man, only only he can properly interpret the Scriptures. The, The common people cannot understand the Scriptures. So I will interpret them for you. Only I understand the original language. Only I understand how it's to be seen. It's dangerous to give the word to the common people. Um, you, you can't do ministry. It's my job to do the ministry. We even have phrases for it. I was called to the ministry, we say. You know who was called to the ministry? All of God's people. First Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So, clergification is the centralization of the ministry into the hands of, of the clergy rather than the distribution of the ministry into the hands of the people now at this point your polity matters we have different polity represented in this room some of you have high polity some of you have low polity i come from a people of low polity Um, some of you may have high polity and I would say I am not uh, I'm very much a believer that what you need to do is to work within your polity so for example if in your polity you believe that only a an ordained credentialed pastor can can lead out in the Eucharist and can uh, can work with the elements and and that requires a certain permission giving structure within within an ecclesiastical hierarchy I would say praise God and be faithful to your understanding of the scriptures in that. But then ask the question, how much more clergified have I been than is necessary? Because I, I think we, we I had a, an Anglican. Some of you be Anglicans. I had an Anglican uh, priest come and share. I, I lead a movement of all the North American church planning leaders. I gather them together twice a year in my office there in Nashville, um, in, our office, in our meeting room in our offices, um, and I tried to pick the person with the highest ecclesiology, who was struggling with clergification. His name is William, and he talked about their strategy, because because in their 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 particular high, their, I recognize city Anglicans have a have a maybe a lower ecclesiology. Low is not bad, and high is not good. It's just different views of driven by our understanding of Scripture but they have a higher ecclesiology than most in this diocese. And here's what William said. He said, you know, we just, we just found a way to give the ministry away, but to recognize the role of the sacraments in the midst of that. And so how did he do it? Well, they had what they call lay catechists who led churches under the authority of a pastor who was ordained through the process. Why? Because they want to move from clergification. But here's the problem. Here's why most of us won't do this. Most of us won't do this because, I want you to hear this, because we like dependent congregations. Why don't you say it again? We like dependent congregations. I love when people come up after church and they say to me, Ben, I'm going to use you as an example. Ben, I mean, you should have not sat here. Ben's from Holy Cross Birdwood? Birdwood. How fascinating. Where love comes to life. I like that. They've got a tagline. You need a tagline. I'm going to get myself a tagline. Ed Stetzer, where mission comes alive uh the uh, <laughs> but I like that, I like that. Uh, <laughs> no, I totally forgot what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> I really did. all right, so, but I need to be done anyway, so uh oh, codependence, all right, so so codependence. So Ben, if you're in my church and you come up after church and you say to me, "Ed, you're the greatest preacher ever. You say, "Ed, I could not have understood anything about the Word of God until you told me. What that does makes me feel great, undermines your spiritual life, but it makes me feel great. And I'm walking around saying, yeah, I am the greatest preacher ever. I am like the fourth member of the Trinity, you know, and, and you know, and I'm going around because I, I get this great sense of accomplishment. And, and so what happens is we end up with passive spectators who rely on active pastors to meet the spiritual needs that God has actually called them to meet with one another in Scripture. And so what we end up with is what we call codependence. Now, this is an Oprah Winfrey moment. I mentioned Oprah in Melbourne. I understand people know who Oprah is, and so that's a good thing. And I just want to say I'm really sorry about that. Uh, and uh, But Oprah would teach codependence is this. A dependent is somebody who... Uh, who has certain emotional, psychological addictions, whatever, that they are dependent on the others to meet their needs. And then what happens is a codependent comes along and Ben's are dependent. Ben, just, Ben, just, you know, I don't want to learn the Bible for myself. I don't, you know, I don't want to serve others. I don't want to share Christ with my neighbor. And, and I say, don't worry, Ben, because Ben keeps saying to me, Ed, you're so awesome. You're the greatest pastor ever. I don't know. It's like it went from Paul to you. And, you know, nothing else happened between those. And I'm like, thank, thank you, man. That just makes me feel great. So I'm like, so I co- when Ben needs me, i'm there right ben's got a friend who needs jesus i go tell ben's friend about jesus ben got a problem ben ben's got a serious toenail problem i'm gonna go into the hospital i visit ben every need i meet i meet ben's needs and you know what it's a horrible cycle that destroys everybody because i get my ego needs met ben never learns to stand on his own it's like a child never learns to walk and the end result is, is we have congregations full of passive spectators rather than active participants in the mission of God. Instead, that requires us to rediscover how God has called all people. We're a nation, we're a kingdom of priests, and to live in light of such. Now, I've got more. What I probably will do, Scott, is I'll I'll both do the rest of this part that we didn't get to and then jump into the multicultural part in the next session. But I know we have panelists, and so I'm going to turn it back over to you. We have Q&A. Okay, so I am the panel. Oh, okay. Okay, you're so generous to me today. I will tell you, I think Australians are the nicest people in the whole world. No, no, it's amazing. My wife wants to move here. She's, like, she's in a big city where people are not rude. We're not accustomed to that. I mean, it's kind of a requirement. When you move into a new big city, you get kind of a snarl. And we just, just people sitting here are so lovely. My wife's gluten intolerant. Gluten, she, she needs gluten-free food. And goes in, do you have a gluten-free menu? Oh, we'd be happy to make something for you. Like in America, they'd say, no, go to a restaurant that cares. And, you know, so I just love, I love this. And every third commercial is about death. Uh, you know, I love that. I love that. <laughs> two, two things, keeping me healthy. So let me share, um, share some things along the way um, that might help. I mentioned already the evangelism gap, intentional reproduction. Let me also mention ecclesiology. I really want to encourage you to consider this. I'm going to come back to this later a lot, is that you might adopt a minimalist but not a reductionistic ecclesiology. It's a very important distinction between the two. Okay? A reductionistic ecclesiology is when you say something like, oh, we get two or three people together they love Jesus, it's a church. No, no, that's two or three people who love Jesus getting together. This is not a church, a church has certain marks and functions. I don't have time to go through them all. There are certain marks and functions. But what I would say is this, is that for most people in most churches, their ecclesiology is more held by their culture than by their convictions. And thus, their ecclesiology becomes a hindrance to church planting. But here's what instead I want to encourage you to do. I want you to ask the question, what is the biblical minimum now, minimum, well, why, why, don't we go, why don't we go for the maximum? No, no, no you understand this from a perspective. What's the biblical minimum that a church must be? And let's plant that and then let it flourish in its context and adopt more. So what's the biblical minimum? I, I, could, give, I could give six. Some people say nine. But, but, but here's what I would say. You've got to talk about biblical preaching and teaching. You've got to talk about the practicing of the uh, the ordinance or the sacraments, depending upon your view, uh, covenant, church membership, church discipline, these things. So a church of 15 people can be a biblical church. Fifteen people without a building meeting in someone's living room can be a biblical church. And a matter of fact, if that church chooses to multiply rather than expand, and then there's another church of 25, and another church of 25 meeting in someone else's apartment or flat, another church of 25, the end result is you can have a multiplication of churches. But if the goal of every church to be a real church is to look like the other real churches that have buildings with facades and columns. The end result is you'll never see a movement because what happens is, is that each of those pursue a different road. And rather than becoming an a, 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 a ongoing uh, part of planting churches, what they do is they become an, a dead end on the Great Commission Highway. Does that make sense? Um, and so I want you to think and say, if you're an Anglican or a Presbyterian or a Baptist, or matter of fact, I'd be interested. How, how many How many Baptists? Baptists, good to see you. How many Anglicans? It's like a revival. Um, do we have any Presby- Presbyterians? Okay, okay, okay. Any Pentecostals? Raise your hand. You're used to that. <laughs> no Pentecostal. Just you? Were you a Pentecostal? Just you? I am sad that we only have one Pentecostal here today. Now no. no, you're not. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, you might as well embrace it. You know what a charismatic often is is someone who's happier than you. And uh, so just go ahead and take that moniker on yourself. So true to your belief. So if you're most of you are Anglicans. So if, as such, we believe in the right administration of sacraments, we believe in the uh, and Sydney Anglicans are, like I said, are lower polity Anglicans than most Anglicans were. I work a lot with Anglicans. Um, uh, worldwide and some of the Anglican realignment among the evangelicals in the states. I'll be doing the new Anglican, uh, Anglican Church in North America. We're doing the first provision, provincial assembly this this year, and I'll be one of the speakers. Michael Youssef, who some of you would know, and I are the two speakers of the Anglican um, Convention in North America. Um, but, so, so, but there's certain things. That they, that, so these should, be, these should be things that you, you have to have. should be a, 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 a closed-hand group of things you have to have then in the midst of that, that might look different. So it, which is a biblically faithful Anglican church or a biblically faithful Presbyterian church should look different in Perth in some ways than it does among, well, Aboriginal peoples in the center of the country. It should, it should to some degree look different. There should be marks of commonality that are the same, but it should in some ways look different. So what then might that look like? Well, let me talk some about this issue of viral churches. Uh, this is from a book that I, I recently wrote. that You have here two minutes. All right, there they are. See you later. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to come back and I'll dress those, and then we'll do the multicultural part as well in just a minute. So let me let me let me wrap up with with this, um, and then I'll come back to these two slides on viral churches. Um, we didn't know how long it would take, just because this is. A, I wanted to bring some things for a little different than I normally would. Um, if we're going to see multiplication, one of the biggest challenges is we have to recognize that if we're not seeing multiplication, something else is so important. Um, if we're not seeing multiplication, you called us to change, right? It's kind of a, you said, we've got to change some things. I and mean, you were kind of aggressive, Al. I was kind of a little bit surprised. I, I, was, I was, you know, there comes a point in a man's life he doesn't care anymore, and I can tell you've kind of hit that point, <laughs> and I like that. I like that. I like that. Um, the the I'll, I'll close with this um I, I have um i have funny shaped feet i know you're thinking what uh stay with me for just a second i have i have funny shaped feet um my feet matter of fact while i'm here in sydney i need to get some new shoes um because your prices are so cheap here shakes uh the uh, uh but both of my feet have a bone that sticks out right there you see that right there um, both of them do on both sides. I've actually had somebody say to me, I can snip those bones right off and fix it. I'm like, ah, you know, I don't want snips near my feet. Um, and so when I get new shoes and I'll probably get some here cause these are starting to wear out, but maybe, um, this hurts for weeks for me, I get a blister there and then it bleeds. I got to wear a band aid uh, um, you know, for, so for weeks I'm walking around hurt if I change. So I, I wear the same shoes for as long as possible because these are comfortable now. i wear these shoes all day long. So, um, so where I, where I live, um, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, we come and, you know, I'm, I'll be wearing these shoes in spring and it, it's not too much of a problem, but I get a hole the size of a size of a quarter, you know, maybe about this big and uh, um, size of a coin this big. And then, then I come into summertime and it kind of grows. It's like this big. And so, but I get one of those inserts in there, you know, there's inserts and I'm gelling with my Magellans. And so I put my Magellan inserts in there and then, then, then uh, it gets closer to fall and and by the time i get to fall it's almost like i'm walking on sock you know it's just sock and that's it but i don't want to change my shoes because know to hurt um until winter comes and then i'll i'll step into just when we say i'll step into a puddle of freezing water almost almost zero degree water and i'll step into that and i'll just i'll feel it just i mean just the water shoots up and it it's so cold it hurts you know you stick it in there it's so cold and it gets stuck because i got you know i get stuck up into my shoe and i'm like oh whoa and um and then my wife, my wife is yelling at me. She says, honey, you got to get new shoes. What's the matter? you got to get new shoes. Oh, it hurts. She says, oh, quit your whining and go get some new shoes. And I'm like, but I don't, and then finally I'll step in that freezing cold water and it will be, it'll hurt so much. I said, oh, fine, fine. I'll get new shoes and I'll go through the difficult period. Here's why. Here's why. Is people never change until the pain of staying the same grows greater than the pain of change. Okay? I want you to hear that. People never change until the pain of staying the same grows greater than the pain of change. What I am hoping sincerely to do today is to help talk about a preferred future that will burden your heart, that, as Al's already talked about, we'll be willing to make some changes and we'll recognize the necessity of those changes if we're going to sow down Australia with gospel preaching churches. There's going to take some pain for hundreds of new churches to be evangelized into existence across Australia. And I think the question that you and I are going to talk about today is, is the pain of staying the same now greater than the pain of change? And if so, what are the right changes for us ultimately to make?